is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The January 6th committee springs a surprise. The panel schedules a last-minute hearing for tomorrow. It says it has new evidence about moves to overturn the 2020 election. We'll go in-depth as we talk with a leading member of the committee. The Supreme Court issuing another big ruling, this time on saying prayers at public schools. We'll look at the impact. And shockwaves continue over the high court striking down Roe versus Wade. What's going to happen to abortion pills? It's the Roberts Court, but has the Chief Justice, John Roberts, been sidelined by the recent decisions? G7 leaders taking new steps to isolate Russia economically. Will those work? And the sunshine state of Florida running out of orange juice. We'll find out the reasons why. We start with the revelation of a new hearing tomorrow morning of the January 6th committee. With us now is committee member and Burbank Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm guessing you're not going to say much about what is supposed to happen tomorrow, but I will ask you this. Uh, You know, it's no secret that the committee has a lot of what it is doing orchestrated by a former television uh, news executive. So there are critics who are already saying that some of the moves the committee is making is geared more towards theatricality. Is that the case tomorrow? No, it isn't. Uh, And the decision to have a hearing tomorrow has nothing to do with the theatricality or production values or ratings or anything like that. Um, We have adjusted our schedule from time to time. We actually originally had contemplated doing hearings this week and then postponed them to July, um, but we, uh, because of some new evidence, want to move forward tomorrow. Um, But, uh, you know, we have certainly, when we do conduct hearings, attempted to uh, display the information in a way that is engaging, that keeps people's attention, uh, that, you know, uh, shows the public how one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to the violence on January 6th. So that, that part is true. Uh, we do want them to be watched, but uh, but the scheduling had nothing to do with that. Wasn't the original reason for delaying them a while to, to kind of gather the new evidence that was coming in? Because you said that the phones have been ringing and, you know, there's new video from this uh, documentary. But now if you want to put something on tomorrow, you've got to have something that you want people to know right now, not next month. Um, that's true. I mean, there there is information that we want to put before the public tomorrow. Um and, you know, again, we, we're making these decisions uh, as the information comes up, uh, depending on uh, the sensitivity of it, depending on how much time we need to assimilate it uh, and vet it with other facts. Um, and and so that's the basis that we make these decisions. Uh, and, you know, I think it's been borne out so far by the work product, which um, has, I think, been very well done and communicated very crisply exactly what's happened with some witnesses that were there at the time uh, with firsthand accounts uh, that have been very powerful. How do you think this has been going over so far with, A, the public, and maybe more importantly, B, the Department of Justice? Um, I think we are, our, our whole goal was to reach people who had an open mind, um, and I think we're doing that. The, the reach of these hearings, I think, has been probably second only to Watergate, uh, and we're in a much more difficult media environment uh, than I think the Congress was back then when people, the networks, networks would carry these hearings live for, you know, six or eight hours a day. We're not in that kind of environment today. Um, but within those constraints, I think we're reaching millions and millions of people. Um, and I think we are also not just preaching to the choir. We're reaching people that, you know, had a genuine interest in knowing about what took place uh, and wanted to be informed by these witnesses. So, 
uh, I think uh, against almost every metric, they've been successful. How many of those people, though? I mean, the reach is millions, but how many of those millions actually do you think have an open mind? I mean, that aren't just on one side of this or the other, because that's the whole issue. It is the whole issue, and, you know, it's very difficult to tell at this point. Most of the information I have is very anecdotal, but the the anecdotal information that I have has been very consistent, which is uh, I continue to hear from people, as do my colleagues, that those in their family, their friends, their cousins, sometimes their parents, um, who they had difficulty talking to for the last four or five years, have been watching and have been really shocked at what they're seeing. And you know, every time I hear those kind of stories, it tells me, okay, we're reaching people outside of the choir that really um, have not been exposed to this information before. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. On, on sort of a broader topic, uh, I was on the other day with a radio station in Australia, and they asked me the same question repeatedly. The question they asked was, what's wrong with America? So? Well, I can understand how people around the world look at what's taking place here, and uh, and it doesn't look like the country that they know and admire and have respected for decades. Uh, you know, when the world watched people climbing, literally climbing on the top of our capital uh, to break into the windows um, and assault our democracy when they see you know millions, tens of millions of people in America believing a big lie about our elections. And now they see a Supreme Court taking rights away instead of uh, expanding rights, uh, as the court did in the Roe decision. Uh, it does cause them to wonder. And the president, uh, Joe Biden, has been very open about this in his travels in Europe and speaking to our allies and making the case that America is back. It has caused people to respond yeah, but for how long? Uh, and the reality is, you know, we're going through a really difficult time as a country. Uh, our democracy is, I think, um, uh, on the weakest foundation it has been uh, since its founding uh, because of the, the effect of this big lie, the continual attack on the sanctity of our elections, the, the degree to which the former president and his allies continue to sow doubt about whether people can rely on elections to decide their differences. Uh, I think we'll get through this period. We're a deeply resilient country. We've been through worse crises in the past, world wars, depressions, etc. But we are going through a really challenging time. And what we do in this moment, I think, will determine how quickly we get through it and how much damage we have to suffer along the way. Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrats from Burbank. Thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Coming up, has the Chief Justice John Roberts lost his influence over the Supreme Court and the latest on gas price politics in Sacramento, lawmakers hearing claims of price gouging. Right now, uh, we got a third major ruling this morning in three days from the Supreme Court. Justices cited by 6-3 to three with a public high school coach who prayed on the field with students. With us now is Stephen K. Green, professor of law and the uh, director of the Center for Religion, Law, and Democracy at Willamette University in Oregon. Uh, thank you, Professor, for being with us. So uh, in the, the ruling, as I'm sure you know, the majority says it was a, an infringement on the uh, high school coach's constitutional right for prayer. Uh, the opposite side made the argument that, uh, yeah, except uh, students might have felt coerced in some way to go along with it, and therefore it was an encroachment on their right to be free of, of having to, uh, you know, uh, go along with a religious belief that somebody else may have and they perhaps don't have. 
So where are we now on this? And, and what sort of doors does this potentially open? Well, what the court majority emphasized was only one part of the First Amendment, and that was the free exercise right, so to speak, of Coach Kennedy. Um, it also had to deal with whether this was a free speech question. Uh, on the other side, though, there's a long tradition that basically says public employees, including school uh, individuals, school employees, don't have the full panoply of free speech rights when they're engaged in their in their duties. Uh, then also there's this concern about the schools not being involved in religious activity, not promoting religion. And so what the court cited on was on his free exercise rights. Uh, this actually um, goes against longstanding jurisprudence in, in both the employment law as well as the non-establishment law areas. Uh, we just saw on Friday the Supreme Court overturning 50-year precedent in the Dobbs case. What the court did today, it actually overturned 60-year precedent in the school prayer decisions going back to the early 1960s. So what happens now if, you know, a teacher wants to pray before class or we talk about, you know, what is the dividing line now between church and state? Because it's not where it used to be. No, it's clearly not where it used to be. Uh, specifically on your question, it's, it's hard to know. The court always claims it wants to cabin the decision before it and disclaims that it's going to be applicable to other situations. But when it comes down to it, a football coach is, in fact, a school employee. He's a staff. And the football field is his classroom, so to speak. And so consequently, the court said, well, he was acting in his private capacity. The game was over, even though he was doing on the 50-yard line, immediately following the game, still wearing his official uh, garb, um, but somehow claimed, well, this was his private speech. Well, what comes to my mind is then what's going to stop a teacher in a regular classroom from telling the students, okay, turn on your computers, do some work. And then the teacher then kneeling in front of his or her desk and praying and making the claim that, well, I'm in my free time right now. Well, and that, I guess, brings up the question that a lot of people erroneously, I think, believe that once the Supreme Court issues a ruling, that sort of ends discussion on an issue and litigation. But in fact, on these very controversial issues, it really is just the beginning, isn't it? Well, quite clearly is, because there are, there are legal groups on both sides, both liberal and conservative legal groups, that pick up on any type of snippet that may appear in one of the opinions. This is why I tell my students when I'm teaching constitutional law that it's just as important to read the concurring opinions and the dissenting opinions, because those sometimes tell us where some of the justices are going in the future. And quite clearly, we saw that in the Dobbs case on Friday, where Justice Thomas goes off and basically says, it gives an open invitation to apply the Dobbs decision to LGBTQ issues as well. So consequently, I have no doubt that there are going to be some conservative legal groups that are now going to encourage teachers to do the same thing within their classroom. Um, Justice Gorsuch gave, a very, I think, a very false analogy. He basically said, well, at the end of the football game, you have staff sometimes engage in private expression like checking their email, going on Facebook, or something like that. And so consequently, it was just as appropriate for Coach Kennedy to pray. It was similar to all these other things people do kind of in their free time. It kind of reminds me of the, of the old Sesame Street song that my daughter learned when she was four years old. 
And it was the song that basically says, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't belong. Doesn't belong. I remember that. Yeah. And, and to a certain extent, I think people can tell the difference between whether when the coach is actually checking his Facebook or going on email, uh, as opposed to kneeling on the 50-yard line at the very, just as soon as the, you know, the bell rings, as the whistle blows, and doing a demonstrative, demonstrative prayer, and then all of the football team comes and joins it. Why do I feel an urge to sing along? (laughs) (laughs) Stephen K. Green, professor of law and director of the Center for Religion, Law and Democracy, Willamette University, up in Oregon. Professor, thanks. Coming up, assessing the latest plans by world leaders to isolate Russia economically and why your Florida orange juice may now be mixed with OJ from Mexico. Right now, though, the protests and uh, celebrations continue over the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade. Uh, that is some states to move to quickly ban abortions, others to protect it. We're joined now by Aziza Ahmed, professor of law at UC Irvine, expert on health law and reproductive rights. Thanks for being with us. So we wanted to take a look at these pills to abort a pregnancy um, medication that we've done stories on before, FDA approved. What's the status of those in some of these states that now have either these outright bans, had the trigger laws, or are going to be ramping up restrictions in the next you know, few weeks. Right. Yeah. Basically, thank you for having me first. Um, basically, medication abortion is also under threat. Um, conservatives also know that this is the next um, big thing to fight. Um, it, the, the difference, though, between medication abortion and Um, a physical in-person surgical abortion is that it is very difficult to actually track who is accessing medication abortion. But we're going to see states um, try their best to stop the the use of medication abortion. I was going to say, why would it be difficult? Don't Don't you have to get the medication from pharmacies? Yeah, you do have to get them from pharmacies, but they are also available online. And you, there are services that are basically accessible to women, even in these states that are banning, um, banning abortion. So essentially, you can call up, let's say, Plan C and have the medications forwarded to you, um, or you could drive to another state and, and get them from another state. It's very difficult, though, to find the woman who is doing that or find the person who is trying to access medication abortion that way. And, and unless, you know, the states are going to try to open everybody's mail, um, which they can't do, um, you know, it's going to be very difficult to track. So, you know, it, I I think we're just going to have to wait and see how how this all plays out. So you think telemedicine will remain an option? And what are the rules supposed to be with that? Is it wherever you're talking to the doctor on the screen, that's the that's the set of rules? So you can call someone in New York or California, or is it the state you're calling from? It's the state you're calling from. It's the patient state. So technically, um, you know, a provider could get in trouble for providing an abortion service if a person is calling from a state which bans that service. Um, but some some states, uh, for example, California, uh, Connecticut, are trying to put in protections for abortion providers who would provide those types of services um, over, you know, telehealth services essentially to help women um, access abortions. Now, of course, the game would totally change, would it not, if uh, conservatives uh, succeed in what some have already stated to be their next goal, which would be to make abortion illegal coast to coast. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that was left open in the Dobbs decision because, you know, Justice Kavanaugh alluded, for example, to the fact that there could be, you know, Congress could make laws on abortion. And of course, that doesn't only mean what reproductive 
uh, rights advocates have been pushing for, which is the Women's Health Protection Act and other laws that would cut you know, what was Roe v. Wade, um, you know, the constitutional right um, to abortion. It could also mean that conservatives rally to pass an, a national abortion ban. You know, I think that's going to take us back to really dark times. And um, and it is really scary to think that that is a viable possibility. Do some of these pills come in from overseas? Is that an option? Yes, some of the pills do come in from overseas. Of course, you know, if if a person is going online and attempting to order pills from a online pharmacy, um, you, that is, and the, the you're ordering generics, you're in um, the realm of potentially getting drugs that don't work or aren't actually what they say they are. Um, you know, some of the pr- providers who provide online services like Plan C do check the providers and do ensure that there's some quality control there, but they're not necessarily uh, generics that are sort of approved by the FDA. So you're in um, uncertain territory. So the safest thing for a person who needs to have an abortion, for a woman who needs to have an abortion, would be to be able to access it through formal channels, um, through a telehealth visit and through a, a pharmacy. Aziza Ahmed, professor of law, UC Irvine experts on health law and reproductive rights. Till recently, Chief Justice John Roberts, seen as a judge with a lot of influence over his eight colleagues on the high court, that has ended after the five fellow conservatives split with him on the abortion ruling. With us to look at all of this and the future of the court, two experts on the Supreme Court, Allison Orr Larson of the William and Mary Law School and David Yaloff, head of the political science department at the University of Connecticut. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Uh, let's begin with you, uh, Allison. Uh, has it always been a myth uh, of such a thing as a chief justice's Supreme Court or has that been the reality for much of American history, and has it now changed? Well, there's a, a nominal way that it's his court, which is just the way that we refer to the Supreme Court during the period of time when the when Chief Justice Roberts was the chief. But when people have been saying it's his court, they're talking about something else. They're talking about him as the median justice, which until Justice Ginsburg died, he was, which meant he often controlled the decisions of the court. And that that period of time does seem to be ending or at least changing. Yeah, David, speak to that for a second, that moderating factor. He tried. Uh, he wrote his own opinion that uh, the Mississippi ban should be upheld and they shouldn't go as far as Roe. But that had no impact on the outcome of the case. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's when it's a very closely split, split court, as Allison pointed out. I mean, there's so many things that can make a difference. The assignment, who it goes to, can make a difference in the final outcome. But when you have camps pretty much set up of six to three like this it's harder for chief justice roberts to uh yeah keep in mind he's still in 96 percent of the majority opinions he's hardly become the great dissenter of the court but he's not as able to control the doctrine he's not as able to control the overruling of precedent and of course that's what we're going to be still talking about this court 20 30 years from now of course allison it, it was the chief justice who said i think more than once that, you know, there aren't Republican judges, justices, there aren't Democratic justices. Uh, the last few rulings would seem to make that argument a lie. Well, he's this is certainly something that's very close to the chief justice's heart. He's an institutionalist. He doesn't like the court to be seen as a political body. I'm sure I'm sure he's had quite a headache over the last couple of days because that is certainly what the court is looking like. 
Um, he's still a conservative jurist, like don't, don't get me wrong, but he likes to move slowly. He doesn't like big jolts, as he calls it. And the last couple of days have seen some serious jolts to the Supreme Court. And that's been a lot of the commentary, too. I mean, the word hurry is being used. Is this a court in a hurry? It seems like a court that's swinging for the fences, to be sure. And that isn't Chief Justice Roberts's style. David, you know, the, uh, I think it's always been famously said that the Supreme Court, you know, doesn't have an army. It doesn't really have a police force. So its rulings are followed simply because people have traditionally uh, believed that it was the final arbiter of American law, constitutional law. Has it lost that credibility now? I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine a situation where uh, large groups of people are going to outright ignore uh, what the court has decided. And remember, we've had moments where we worried about that, uh, not only dating back to the Civil War, but as recently as Bush versus Gore, when the Supreme Court got involved in a presidential election. Um, but we we will expect um, there to be a lot of attempts to mitigate, to diminish, to try to keep uh, the actual effect of this uh, lands, you know, landmark opinion from uh, having the ramifications over long term that it probably will have if, if a lot of people have their say. And so we're going to see the Biden administration, we're going to see these these other government institutions take their role now, which is it's back to the states and what they have to react to. David, losing your phone line a little bit there. So, so Allison, back to you for a second and, and back to that politics question. Are people just done believing that this thing isn't political, though? And maybe in the past you could sell them on it or maybe they truly thought that. But even when you look at the polling and there's those two questions, do you have faith in them? Uh, no, not as much. And is it political? They say yes. I mean, I think it's it's certainly going to take a hit to the reputation of the court. One one thing to bear in mind is Casey, the one of the precedents that the court overturned, the justices were adamant that they worried about the legacy and the legitimacy of the court if it were thought to be a political institution. The Dobbs reasoning takes a different tack, and they say, well, our job is to say what's right, come what may. We don't care what people are saying about us. And that's a change, not just in the law, but also a change in how the court sees its role. David, are you back with us? I am. I'm here. Okay. Uh, Let me ask you uh, a political question here, because one of the key reasons, if I'm not mistaken, that the founding fathers gave Supreme Court justices uh, life terms was to shield the court, the justices from politics. It doesn't seem to have worked out that way. Well, on one hand, yes. But on the other hand, you have a president who appoints the justices. You have a Senate that confirms or rejects. And so politics is so... Uh, woven into the way they are chosen. It's hard to imagine that once arriving on the court, they can dismiss all of politics. But they are supposed to have the autonomy and the freedom to do what they believe is right and not worry about their jobs. David Yaloff, head of the political science department, University of Connecticut, and Allison Orr Larson of the William and Mary Law School. The G7 summit in Germany has come up with new plans to punish Russia economically for its invasion of Ukraine. With us now is Aaron David Miller, senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, CNN Global Affairs analyst. Aaron, thanks for coming back to the show. So they've been talking about a couple things, uh, maybe a price cap on oil and gas from Russia or a ban on gold imports. Uh, what do we think about these doing something that would work? All to the good, and I think they'll increase the pressure. But step back for a minute. Tolstoy, I think, said that the two greatest warriors were time and patience. And what you've got now is a four-month-old conflict entering its fifth month. 
in which there's no prospect of any kind of victory by either side and no prospect of a diplomatic off-ramp for compromise. So in the end, it'll be the side that is able to maintain the greatest degree of stamina and patience and cope with the time factor. All these things are going to help. I mean, the all cap is a very creative Janet Yellen idea. It's going to depend, however, on whether or not the Chinese, uh, they're buying vast quantities of Russian oil at discount, and the Indians, the same, who are buying vast quantities and re-exporting them for profit, for refined products, are are willing to play along and and accept a a discount. I I just don't think any of these measures over the short term, the short term being the next several months, uh, or let's say even between now and and year's end, will have the sort of determinative effect uh, that'll cause the Russians uh, cause the Russians to crack. You know, we keep hearing on how Putin uh, underestimated the Ukrainians. How much did we in the West underestimate Putin? Well, you know, we put a lot of faith in the whole notion that's a globalized world, right? Everybody's connected. All that's to the good, but uh, there's a downside to that, and that is the blowback from sanctions. Now, the reality is Russians are responsible for one out of every 10 uh, barrels of oil produced in the world. So you deny the market Russian oil, it does two things. It it brings incredible revenue, billions of dollars um, uh, every day into Putin's coffers, and it diminishes supply, which then has a boomerang impact, which is why I know out in California, I mean, we're paying around five bucks. You're probably paying more. And look at the food crisis we've now got. I mean, we've sanctioned or about to sanction um, maritime insurers with respect to not exporting um, Russian oil, but then that affects the export of food. And Putin essentially has blocked any exports uh, through the Black Sea of uh, of Ukraine, which supplies, what, 20, 30 percent of the world's grain. So places like Egypt, Yemen, I mean, you've got on top of uh, food insecurity, you've got real prospects now. And Afghanistan of famine. So there is a blowback. But again, I'm not sure there's any alternative, uh, Mike and Charles, to sticking with uh, sticking with the program and continuing to keep the Ukrainian military uh, in um, supply them with the weapons they need at least at least to hold their own, if not at some point uh, to go on the offensive. But right now, it, the trend lines don't look good. What? Should we be worried about when it comes to, to to Germany maybe folding faster than anybody else? Because the Russians, they can really put the squeeze on them. They can. And right now you're already seeing the Germans uh, beginning to authorize uh, 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 coal production using coal, fire up coal plants to produce electricity because the Germans are vulnerable. You're talking about a, a German prime minister is talking about gas rationing. So the Germans stood up. And I think that uh, on balance, they'll remain up. It's just, uh, I'm not sure you can count on Germany basically to um, to somehow fully commit to this. You, you got Europe divided into two, two, two sorts of groups. You have the frontline states, the Poles and the Baltics, who understand the realities of, uh, of uh, Russian aggression in their neighborhood. And then you have the Brits, the French, and the Germans, who frankly belong, I wouldn't say to the peace camp, who believe that it's better to have this war come to an end sooner rather than later. And that means putting some pressure on Zelensky. Uh, But that's only good if Putin is willing to make some sort of deal. And right now, there's zero indications of that. So who do you think blinks first, Putin or the West? (laughs) You know, Pythia, the Oracle of Delphi, reading the best (laughs) coffee grinds and goat entrails. (laughs) 
that that she would have. Was that was that Starbucks in those days or no? Probably, probably, yeah, yeah. early Starbucks, knowing Starbucks, probably. (laughs) Um, And I can't answer that question. And you know, the two of you are too smart, and your listeners are too smart to pay any attention to any prediction that I'm going to make on this. Time and patience, the side that is best able to cope with the first and demonstrate more of the second ultimately will be the winner. And I'm not even sure if I had to define what's a reasonable win. Pushing Russian forces back to status quo ante February 23rd of this year would be a huge victory for Ukraine. Retaking Crimea and pushing the Russians out of the eastern Ukraine, the Donbass that they held prior to February 24th when they invaded, is probably not, not possible. But to maintain Ukraine as a, even a partially sovereign state, uh, seems to me against, you know, one of the two or three, we thought, uh, most modernized and efficient uh, armies in the world would be a huge achievement. It's obviously not, doesn't sound the way to the Ukrainians who are dying every day and watching their country destroyed. So I, I really wish I could answer that question for myself. I can't. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow, the Carnegie Endowments for International Peace, CNN Global Affairs Analyst. A little later, Sacramento lawmakers will hear fresh testimony about alleged price gouging by the oil companies as they consider a bill to force refiners to make public their profit margins comes after the governor and senior Democrats announce this deal to provide tax rebates to Californians. With us now is Larry Gersten, political analyst and professor emeritus at San Jose State University. Thanks for being with us. So, it you know, most people, when they go to the pump and they see these prices for gas, uh, almost uh, just slightly south of $7, dollars a gallon at many pumps, at least in the L.A. area, they do think that, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this. How much of this is legit? How much of this is being just gouging by these oil companies? And that question always comes up, it seems to me, whenever we have these price increases. And we never seem to get a satisfactory answer. Why do you think that is? Well, there are a couple of issues. Uh, First of all, the oil companies don't feel good about divulging their profits and losses, of course, that's profits and greater profits. Uh, why should they if they don't have to? I mean, you know, we always talk about transparency in government, and we're a lot more likely to find it in government than we are in the private sector. And oils companies are, are, are really the, 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 one of the most accused of all those uh, companies because of the, the huge discrepancy in prices. Now, having said that, we do have a couple of unusual issues in California. Uh, that, that are responsible for higher prices. One, of course, we have environmental issues, climate change issues, and because of that, we have special additive, additives that go into the gasoline uh, in, the, in the spring and in the fall, and that adds up to 50 or 60 cents a gallon. So that's one thing. That's a constant, and that's legitimate. Uh, the other thing is that's a problem, and that is we have 11 refineries, I think it is, refineries in California, and commonly one or two or three are down at any one point in time. And that makes uh, the, the demand uh, not necessarily meeting up with the supply. And, and that's a problem, too. And so, again, if you've got a greater demand than supply, that's likely to keep the prices up. All that said, there's every reason to understand these things, both in terms of what's legitimate and what might be not legitimate. 
Is there the appetite to actually move this bill through to, to get them to, to turn that stuff over? Because we had the same fight for years also that there's this mystery surcharge in there. No one can figure out what it is. And they've had hearings before and they still can't figure it out what it is. And then the oil guys will tell you, no, it's just marketing and transport and all that stuff. So you got to figure out if that thing exists first. There's no doubt about it that the uh, uh, petroleum lobby is one of the most powerful lobbies in California. And uh, they're not beyond reaching... Uh, a number of legislators. People think, oh, because Democrats have such a huge majority, uh, they're going to they're uh, weigh in and, and uh, act responsibly against the oil companies. But the problem is, of course, is that they're Democrats and they're Democrats. And uh, there are enough moderate Democrats uh, who are interested in listening to what the oil uh, lobby says. And, not, and some of them, of course, have, have refineries and, and other elements in their districts. So yeah, I mean you're right. I mean they're 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 very very powerful, and they often are able to to get to those uh, committees and and uh, squash the whole thing. So we don't know. This is a good time uh, for those people who want transparency to push for it because the prices are so high, and that's when the oil companies are the most vulnerable. And I hate to be defeatist about it, but are we at the point where we just have to kind of reconcile ourselves to? The fact that the uh, oil and gas companies, they're going to do what they want to do, and there's not that much we can do about it. Well, you know, um, I'm a half-full type of guy when it comes to looking at the glass. And, and I mean, the voters... Is it full of water or gasoline? (laughs) Let's call it water. Okay. Uh, um, uh, The voters have weighed in on these issues more than once. Uh, Think about how we've uh, managed uh, the tobacco industry, for example, uh, with, uh, with rather strict legislation in California through the initiative process. So I'm not entirely sure that at a time like this, that uh, perhaps environmental and, uh, and uh, other public policy groups might push to get uh, a, uh, an initiative on the ballot. I don't know of any, but this would be a good time. Again, when things are tough, that's when you want to strike the industry that's in question, whatever it is, tobacco, gasoline, whatever. And, uh, and I'm not ruling that out, given what's going on and how, and how people suffer. And, and, and in fairness, maybe everything's legit. Maybe. But until we see the books, we won't know. What do we need to understand about this uh, rebates program, this, this deal that was, uh, that was struck in Sacramento? I guess one of them is that you're not going to see a check like next week or even next month. You're not going to see a check until October. Isn't that interesting? The month before the election. Oh, my gosh, that's just another coincidence. Uh, um, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be tiered. Uh, those at the very top will get a couple of hundred dollars a person. Those at the very bottom will get considerably more. Uh, I think we're talking about 11 or $12 billion. It took forever. Uh, and once again, it shows you the differences between Democrats in the legislature. It's kind of like herding cats. You know, we, we expect them all to, to be the same way, and they're not. And the governor. And uh, they knocked heads enough, and the budget, had the, the, uh, the year, I guess, closes for, uh, on uh, the 30th. So they had to get stuff in or suffer the consequences, mostly with public animus. So, yeah, they've got it done. Uh, we'll see it in October, about $11 billion, as I recall. And uh, it's, it will do something, I think, to uh, uh, appease uh, voters who are pretty unhappy about what's happening with uh, gasoline prices. Larry Gersten, political analyst, professor emeritus, San Jose State. So the other day, uh, I go to the supermarket and I pick up a uh, Florida's natural orange juice container. And it always said, not from concentrate, 100% pure orange juice. From Florida. Yeah, Florida's. Uh, yeah, Florida, yeah, I mean, it's in the name. Florida's <laughs> natural art. You would think it's all from Florida. 
And I noticed two things. One, it all of a sudden said it was some concentrate. Two, it said that it was mixed with juice from Mexico. And actually, a third thing on the side of the carton was what amounted to a large apology saying that the uh, crop harvest was 70 percent less than it was just 10 years ago. And so, in effect, Florida is running out of oranges for the juice. So with us now, Matt Joyner, Executive Vice President, CEO of Florida Citrus Mutual, represents nearly 2,500 growers. Matt, thanks for being here. Uh, Things don't sound like they're going so great. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Obviously, we are uh, encountering some struggles here in Florida in our citrus production uh, industry. And, And as you've pointed out, as a result of a decline in production over the last decade, decade and a half, uh, we are having a hard time maintaining uh, the volume of juice necessary for the domestic demand here in, in the U.S. Well, in fact, uh, isn't the number of, of orange, I guess it goes by boxes, uh, produced uh, this year in the state of Florida at, at a, a low not seen since I think it was right around the end of World War II? That's correct. We'll finish up with about uh, – 40.7 million boxes of oranges this year. And, and as you point out, that's a low not seen since around uh, World War II. And just as a comparison, you know, a, a decade and a half, two decades ago, before citrus greening uh, infected our industry at what is now almost 100% infection rate, we were producing upwards of 250 million boxes. All right, let's talk about citrus greening. Is that the main problem? And this is uh, disease carried by, by bugs. And what does it do to the fruit? That's right. So this is a disease that uh, we think came in through the southern ports. Uh, We call it citrus greening. It's it's called Huang Long Bing. It it came from uh, China, and it's spread by a little bug, the citrus psyllid, that feeds on the new flush of citrus trees. It it has run rampant in the state of Florida. This is a disease that's been around for over 100 years. There's no known cure to citrus greening. It ultimately is a bacterial disease that infects the trees. And so the vascular system of the tree starts to clog up, and it, and it prevents the nutrition from getting in the trees. You start to lose root mass, and so it makes your fruit a little smaller than it would ordinarily be. And it makes it difficult for the tree to hold on to the fruit until, uh, until harvest. So we get what we call a fruit drop that can be upwards of 30 to, to even 60% of the fruit that, that falls off the tree before it's mature and ready for harvest. The uh, the carton that I was just describing before from that particular brand also kind of points a finger at Mother Nature. So how much has climate change and freezing also played a role? Yeah, so, you know, we have certainly had issues with hurricanes, which are not uncommon in Florida. In 2017, we, we were uh, struck by Hurricane Irma. That was probably one of the most devastating storms for the the citrus region, because it really came up the spine of the state where most of the citrus is, uh, had a devastating impact on trees. A lot of these trees older, some of them sick from greening. You, you had flooding in some areas where, where trees were completely destroyed because they sat in water too long. Uh, the stress on the trees obviously impacts their productivity. Um, and so going forward, you, you had an issue where uh, certainly that, a freeze that we had this last year also was, was very uh, harmful to our, our citrus crop. And so you are having weather events, which we've always had in farming, that contribute to this. But but I would say that the, the consistent here is, is a 
decrease in production because of long, long being or citrus greening that, that has really just devastated this industry. So what are the options on the table to, to try and counteract that? There is no cure. You can't fix it once, once the tree has it. Yeah, there, there's no cure yet. We have been working hard through uh, research funded by the grower. The state of Florida has helped fund some of that research as has USDA to look for solutions. I think we've learned a lot in the last 15 years. Conventional breeding is, is an area that we've really focused on. So how do we develop a tree through breeding that ultimately is resistant or more tolerant of citrus greening? So we're looking at rootstock scion combinations that, that seem to be more resistant, but it's a tree crop. So you have to get them in the ground and, and grow them up to productivity five years and then another seven, eight, ten years to really see how they're going to doing commercial production. So certainly breeding is one mechanism we're looking at to try to come up with trees that are that are going to be less susceptible to greening. And until then, you know, the options, as you read on that carton, we're having to, to import and, and blend up uh, some of that Brazilian and Mexican juice in order to, to fulfill the demand that the consumers have in the U.S. For, for orange juice. Can I presume that this bug also impacts grapefruit or no? Yes, all varieties of citrus. So we've we've seen, we're talking about orange juice here, but we have a very robust grapefruit, not only juice, but fresh fruit industry, particularly on our our, uh, East Coast. And there is a a, a very detrimental impact. Matter of fact, I would say grapefruit trees tend to be a little more susceptible to greening even than than oranges. So so we're looking at across the board grapefruit, uh, our mandarins, as well as, as round oranges. Matt Joyner there, Executive Vice President, CEO, Florida Citrus Mutual, represents uh, nearly 2,500 growers. Good luck out there. Thanks, Matt. There used to be a commercial on, uh, I forgot the brand, you know, what's the day without Florida, you know, orange yeah. juice? I, I guess it's today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, It's Florida asterisk orange juice. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, that's in depth for today. Back tomorrow. We'll see you at 1 p.m. And traffic in a minute.